Well, I invite you to turn with me once again this morning to the book of Luke, chapter 9. This is going to be the last time uh, that we turn to the book of Luke, at least for a while. We have come today officially uh, to the end of this mini-series that we started, oh, I don't know, uh, seven or eight weeks ago, I think, um, as we've looked at these various events of Jesus uh, eating and drinking And uh, I hope and pray that through these accounts uh, that the grace and the joy of the Lord uh, has encouraged you as most all of these sermons, I think all of these sermons uh, have been preached with me looking into the lens of a camera rather than into the eyes of you out there in your living room. Um, But I hope and pray uh, that it has been a blessing to you as I bring this series To a close today, we turn uh, to what is perhaps uh, Jesus' most public moment when he was here on earth. It's a miracle of profound significance. It's a miracle that is recorded uh, by all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The only other miracle recorded by all four gospel writers is the resurrection itself. But this is a miracle that was witnessed by literally thousands upon thousands of people. Because it's already been recorded by the gospel writers, we, when we studied the book of Mark several years ago, we looked at this account or a version of this account through the eyes of, of Peter Um, uh, Mark's version because Peter's the one who spoke Mark's gospel to him and then Mark wrote it down. You might remember that. And yet like a lot of the gospel accounts, these men, when they retold a story of something they've experienced, they come with their own perspective. They come with their own angle. They, they highlight different things in the story. And so today we look at the feeding of the 5,000, not through the eyes of Peter, through the pen of Mark, but we look at it through the eyes of Luke. And I'm going to back up our reading today because I hope to show you that verses 1 through 6 and then verses 7 through 9, which are divided in your Bibles by, by paragraphs and by headings, I want to show that those two sections set up two situations and two questions that I believe uh, excuse me, Luke wants to answer in his retelling of what he saw so long ago on that hill. So listen as I read uh, and give your attention to God's word. I'm going to read Luke chapter 9 verses 1 through 20. Luke chapter 9 verses 1 through 20. And he, that is Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed 
and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the tetrarch, heard all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he, that is Jesus, took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And had them sit and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Glory be to the Father and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. 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 Well, I admit that this passage that we're looking at this morning uh, is a bit different than the ones we've been looking at, where Jesus has most often gone into people's homes and there's been some sort of scene that has instructed us there about who Jesus is, about what kind of Savior. This is a bit different. This This is big. This is a big meal. This is a big public scene, but I think it's important and it fits well at the end of this series, a series which I would characterize as as being a lot of kind of introspection, a lot of in-house, let's look at Jesus and, and think about our Savior. 
Now this is out in the public sphere. And these two scenes have two answers for us that are given in this incredible miracle. And so I want to focus our hearts this morning again on two truths for us. And the first one is this. Jesus is the one your hearts have waited for. Jesus is the one that your hearts have waited for. I want to begin this morning with a quote from uh, the great English writer C.S. Lewis. Uh, Many of you know him well, have read him. If you are listening and you don't know, he's a widely uh, written author um, and uh, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, that wonderful kids series. He's probably most well known for that, but wrote a lot of other great uh, books. And in his book, Mere Christianity, he says this. He says, most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give you, but never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Brothers and sisters, I proclaim to you this morning that that desire that you long for is found in a person, the person of Jesus. And here in the book of Mark, here in this account, he proves it in the most profound and public of ways. But before we go there, before we go to the actual scene, as I said at the beginning, I want to back up and I want us to think just about verses seven to nine. We're gonna skip one through six for a moment. Just verses seven to nine. Draw your attention there with me. We learn in verses seven to nine about Herod. Herod is perplexed, Luke says. This, this Herod that is spoken of is Herod Antipas. He was the son of, of Herod the Great. Herod the Great ordered the death of all boys two years and younger when Jesus was born and he heard about this uh, threat to his power. Herod ruled under the authority of Rome, of the empire. He was a Jew who ruled this region that contained Galilee and any threat to his rule, any threat to his power or, or to his reputation was of great concern. This Herod that's spoken of here that's perplexed, he had already jailed and then beheaded John the Baptist. When John the Baptist, the pre-runner to Jesus, had called him out for his immoral relationship with his sister-in-law. Now here, a popular teacher from from Nazareth with with his ragtag bunch of followers is is making waves in his province. And and Herod, a, a Jew himself, his confusion likely reflects the confusion of many, maybe some of, of Luke's intended audience, maybe even some of you listening 
here today over the internet. Who is this Jesus? Who is he? Perhaps he's an Old Testament prophet. The reappearance of one of the old figures of Jewish history was a common guess. The Jews knew, for instance, that Elijah hadn't died in the ordinary sense. He had been caught up into heaven by a chariot. And so they wondered that maybe Elijah would return at some point. Maybe this is Elijah come back, or maybe he's some other prophet of old. After all, Moses said in Deuteronomy 18 that there would be another prophet like him that would come at some point. Or, or maybe it's John the Baptist who's, who's come back to life. And in the end of our passage, in verse 20, we hear Peter's firm and accurate declaration. You are the Christ of God. Now, Christ was Greek for the Hebrew Messiah, which meant anointed one. The one the Jews had for generations upon generations been told about through their writings and through their prophets, the one that they had waited and longed for, for for centuries, Peter declares, this Jesus is he, the one that our hearts have waited for. Now, obvious, maybe it's not so obvious to me because I can't see through that camera to know who exactly is listening, but, but we're not Jewish here this morning, at least not here in this gym, the little group of us that's gathered. I'm not Jewish. And so as Jesus proves he's the one we've waited for, have I really waited for him? I proclaim to you that Jesus, this same Jesus, this Jew from Nazareth, is the one that we all have waited for, the one we all need, whether we know it, whether we knew it or not. You see, it's no coincidence that we have Herod's perplexity right before this account, right before this miracle, because Luke is seeking to bring some, some clarity to the situation. So let's, let's get to the account. 5,000 people have gathered in the middle of nowhere outside of Bethsaida to hear Jesus. And it's actually more like 15 to 20,000 people because the 5,000 number is just the men who were counted. There were likely, presumably, uh, many women there and many children there as well. And so we can uh, not only double that number, but we can triple that number, number very easily and conservatively. And Jesus welcomes them. He teaches them. He heals them. But as he's doing this, the disciples, as the day gets later and later, the disciples see, see a problem coming. These thousands of people are, are going to need to eat before they go home. This is an overwhelming need that Jesus here meets with extraordinary Power. He makes that which was woefully inadequate fully satisfy. Five loaves, two fish, that's all there is. 
John's account of this miracle goes into the detail that it was actually the lunch of a, a little boy, that he had that, and he was in attendance, and he offered it up, and Jesus looks up to heaven, and he blesses this, this, these five loaves and this two fish, and he instructs the disciples to serve it to these thousands upon thousands of people as they've been divided into fifties, and it somehow just keeps coming. It keeps coming. Remember, these Thousands of people are wondering where in the world is all this food coming from? I mean, this is an incredibly public event. Word would have eventually trickled down through the crowd. Jesus of Nazareth has done something. He's provided this food for us. And I think thinking about the public nature of this event and the thousands in attendance is important, particularly when we think about the truth of God's word. Because some 30 years later, when this account was written down by Luke, as one who was there, as one who not only witnessed it, but participated in it, there literally would have been thousands upon thousands of people in Bethsaida and in the surrounding villages who were either there or who had a family member there who could verify or debunk if it didn't happen, but verify that this indeed happens. That this Jesus of Nazareth, that this Jew has the signs and wonders to prove his claims. That this is the one that we have waited for. Now, now this has a very distinctly Jewish revelation happening here. As I said, Herod was a Jew. The people they assumed that Jesus maybe could have been, those, those were, were Jews in history. So there's a, there's a very powerful, distinctly Jewish revelation happening here. Jesus is revealing himself as, as the new Moses, the better Moses. Jesus is the new Elijah, the better Elijah. Jesus is the final prophet. He is God's last word. And just as Moses provided manna in the wilderness, it was actually God who provided manna in the wilderness, but Moses, it was his leadership that God used. Just as a prophet, excuse me, just as a group of prophets was fed by Elijah in 2 Kings 4, so Jesus the new and better Moses and Elijah satisfies his people in their hunger. And so Luke is communicating something very pointed to his Jewish audience, to those who are reading this. This is the one that you have been waiting for, the one that all those others pointed to. But this morning, I don't want you to miss all you non-Jews, myself included. Don't miss the universal message for all of us listening. You are not on that hillside. You are not looking and longing for Jesus in the same way. But you all need bread. Every day you need bread. But the literal bread that Jesus provided and satisfied those who were on that hillside 
That literal bread is just a pointer to what you really need in life. And that is Jesus himself. The bread of life. We read it earlier from John 6. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven and anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And so Jesus declared to the men and women outside of Bethsaida that day, he has proclaimed to all who have read this account since and he proclaims to you here today, he is the one your hearts have waited for. He is the one that your hearts long for. He is the one you desperately need. He is the one, the only one who can satisfy that hunger, who can quench that thirst for something better, for something greater than anything that we can experience here on earth. And that's the first thing I want us to see and respond to this morning especially if you've never come to Jesus, especially if you've never really seen the beauty of the Savior who came to satisfy you, to give himself for you. I call you to come to him. But there's another pointed message here in this account And this is a message that is particularly for those who already follow him, for for we, the church. It's our second point this morning, and it's this. Not only is Jesus the one that your hearts have waited for, but Jesus invites you to be instruments of his grace. Jesus invites you to be instruments of his grace. As we did with that first point, I want to go back to the situation which sets this up. Back in verse 1 of our passage, Jesus sends his disciples. He sends these 12 followers who have been walking with him and learning from him for years. And he sends them out on their their very first solo journey. Having become witnesses of God's power through Jesus, they are now sent out with his authority to proclaim Jesus and to announce his kingdom without him by their sides. This is a big deal. I mean, this this is the start. And Jesus knows that for his followers, he knows, even in his instructions to them, that opposition awaits them, whether it be just discouragement, whether it be those who reject them, whether it be outright spiritual opposition. This was not going to be a walk in the park for his disciples. Travel light, Travel with purpose, that seems to be uh, the mantra for these followers. How long they are gone on this mission, on this journey that he sends them, we don't know. But notice what Jesus does upon their return. 
So we learn of that in the first few verses of chapter 9. And then in verse 10, as they come back, he says that, Luke says this, he took them and withdrew. He took them and withdrew. You see, for these disciples, this was a busy and exhausting mission. They returned with stories, I'm sure a ton of stories, but they also turn, returned very weary, very worn out. And so Jesus is, is pulling them away to, to plan a little disciples retreat, to refresh them and to help them recover. But, but things don't go as, as planned, do they? The crowd finds them and follows them. And even in this, I think Jesus was speaking to those who followed him, those anxious to serve him for the sake of the kingdom. You see, there's one verse, verse 13, that that lodged in my brain this week as I was studying this, as I was thinking about this account. Verse 13. See, a huge problem has presented itself. Thousands upon thousands of people need to eat. And it seems to me the disciples come up with a very good, logical solution for for Jesus to carry out. Jesus just asks the people to go find themselves some food, go to the surrounding villages before it gets dark, go to their homes, take care of yourselves. Jesus, we need you to do this. You got to be the one to announce it. And and what does Jesus do? Jesus' reply is so striking You, the word you is emphasized in the Greek. You give them something to eat. What? (laughs) I mean, it almost sounds like a reply of frustration. Could Jesus be frustrated at them? Well, no, he, he just welcomed them. He's welcomed the crowd even though they were a disruption to his, attention, to his intentions. Maybe he's frustrated the disciples. I know he's concerned about their exhaustion. He is being tender with them. So, so what is this? Jesus, Jesus could just snap his fingers. He could say a prayer. He could do what he eventually does, and he knows that they can't. For the disciples... This solution to this problem is an impossibility. In John's account, John records Philip crunching the numbers, and the numbers just don't add up. There's simply not enough food on hand, nor is there enough manpower or time to bring enough food back for 15,000 people, Jesus. So what is going on here? You give them something to eat. See, what I think this is, is this is an invitation. This is an invitation to be an instrument of grace. This is an invitation to faith in the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus knows that his disciples can't do this. He's making sure that they know it. He's highlighting their inability. Jesus will meet the needs of these people and the disciples will participate in feeding them. 
Jesus didn't just say, well, you figure it out. I'll support your efforts and whatever you want to try. Nor did Jesus just say, okay, fine, just leave it to me. I'll do it. But he certainly could have. What does he do? He instructs them. Break the people up into groups of 50. He fills the baskets for them to pass out. He satisfies every single person there. And then even makes sure that in the end, there are 12 baskets left over for the 12 disciples who had been so actively serving. You see, Jesus invites, empowers, equips, and provides for these 12 as they lay the foundation of this kingdom. He he has all they need. They merely need to look to him. You're sitting there saying, well, it's 2020, Nate. We're not apostles of Jesus. The church of Jesus Christ, as we walk in this way, we walk in the path that has been laid out by these apostles, by Jesus himself, and the same invitation and the same provision is for us. Speaking to the church, Paul says and writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. You, brothers and sisters, are an extension of this apostolic mission. Not just me as a pastor, not just the officers of this church, but all of us. Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1 that the church would know the immeasurable greatness of his power to those who believe. Jesus is inviting us. He's inviting you to be an instrument of his grace, to participate in his mission. We don't just support missionaries. We are missionaries. And Jesus points out their inability that he might focus on his sufficiency. The disciples had no strength to give. Five loaves, two fish is all that they could muster. But that's exactly the kind of weakness that God loves to show himself strong. And as we sit here as the church, there is no greater promise for us Not only do we need life, do we need to be reminded that Jesus is the one that our hearts have waited for, but he delights to use us to give that life to others. And not just the supremely gifted or the well-resourced, it's through the ordinary, through those willing to give whatever they have. And trust him to multiply it. What a gift. What a privilege. What an invitation that God would use us as instruments of his grace in the lives of others. Can you imagine the the joy on that boy's 
face that John mentions in his account. Can you imagine his story? Not of his generosity, but of what the Savior did to what he had. That, those are my fish. Those were my loaves of bread. Whatever you have, no matter how meager, let him use it. You see, I think that's Luke's encouragement. I think that's his invitation to us. And as the Holy Spirit has preserved this word for generations upon generations, it comes to us as fresh as it came to those 12 disciples. As those filled by Jesus, give him away with the strength and the grace that he provides. Offer Others, the bread of life that sustains you. Jesus invites you to be an instrument of his grace. Well, APC, we've, we've seen it all in this series, Feasting with Jesus. We've seen Jesus as honored guest. We've seen Jesus as gracious host. And here we see Jesus as the food that we need and the food that we give to others. Indeed, the one that our hearts have waited for. May we eat. May we be filled. May we keep eating in dependency that we might give away generously. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your power, for your kindness for your provision not only for this account and the amazing incredible satisfying meal that you gave those thousands of people so long ago but for what this meal pointed to both the provision of your life for you are the bread of life that we all need And then for the invitation to take the bread that we enjoy and experience and to let it fill others as well. Father, thank you for the reminder that yes, we are insufficient for such a task, but that not stop us. For all we need to do is walk in faith to the one who provides all that we need, to the one indeed who has promised to be with us always to the very end of the age. O Holy Spirit, take this word and plant it deep in our hearts that it might encourage us, that it might change us, that it might remind us of our mission and of your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.